Welcome to this episode of Art of Drug Choice. This is episode one. I am honored to have my great colleagues, uh, Dr. Leila Weisovich from Duke Eye Center and Dr. Joe Coney from Cleveland. Hi, both of you. Hi, Arshad. How are you? Arshad. I am glad to have you both here because you are busy surgeons as well as clinical researchers. And, you know, the goal of uh, this podcast really is to update our listeners about how we are choosing drug, what are we excited about, and how we pick patients uh, uh, to, to provide them with this latest and greatest treatments that are coming down the pipeline. So, so let's first start talking about port delivery system. Fascinating uh, technology, recent FDA approval, and, and now patients can go away from injections to the surgical procedures that that's done in the OR. Uh, the efficacy in the archway trial was comparable to monthly ranibizumab injection uh, in terms of BCVA change as well as uh, OCT. So really uh, game changing in terms of uh, efficacy. Now, obviously, our colleagues look at the data, and especially the, the colleagues who are not in the trial. Of, of course, the concern is 1.7% rate of uh, endophthalmitis. There's a box warning of 2%. Uh, rate of endophthalmitis from all trials, including the extension trial. So Leila, I'm going to start with you. How do you see PDS fitting in your uh, treatment algorithm? And what kind of patients do you think you're going to um, offer this uh, innovative treatment option? Yeah, Arshad, thank you. That's a great question. I'm super excited. I think we are at the prince of major changes or paradigm changes, um, shifts in, in the way we um, manage our patients. And I'm excited to have longer treatment, long, longer duration treatment options. Um, we all been talking about treatment burden and what it takes for patients to come in to see us on a monthly basis. So PDS is definitely going to uh, fulfill um, that need. Um, I think the you know, patient who has challenge coming to a clinic and being followed is going to be a, a prime example. Um, being that my, I'm a surgeon um, and I, you know, often putting in devices such as register or such um, in that space, I, I feel quite comfortable um, with this type of procedure and following the patients. But I'm even more so comfortable that, you know, my patients are not going to miss appointments and uh, they're going to have continued um, drug delivery throughout that time and, you know, potentially need refills just every six months. So um, I think it's going to really fulfill the need of this treatment burden. And I think it's going to provide, you know, great efficacy like it has in the trial. I think those are great points. And I totally agree with you. I think the outcomes from the trials are pretty impressive that, you know, we cannot have monthly injections in uh, all of our patients and get those outcome because, you know, monthly injections still uh, have the best uh, efficacy. So Joe, of course, efficacy is great. Talk to me as a super surgeon and, you know, doing so many cases in a day, what are you concerned about in terms of adverse events and, and how are you going to fit PDS patients in your busy OR schedule? Well, I think the first thing I would look, I would try to find is, is who I think would be the right patient for this. And in the study, they found people that were really in the maintenance phase of their, of their, of their disease. So I'll be looking for people that had a previous response to other anti-VGFs that I could not extend out either four, six, or even eight weekers. I think they'd be pretty thrilled that they may not have to come in for, uh, for uh, frequent injections. But with that being said, I think it's more important to understand who I may not consider this in. And I think that uh, for the first time, we will, we will have to be more concerned about extraocular 
uh, diseases. Uh, those that have uh, scarred or thin conjunctivas, those that have calcifications of, of their sclera, particularly those that may have uh, surgeries that involve the supratemporal quadrant, like glaucoma surgery. If you have very bad surf surface ocular disease, a bad rosacea or blepharitis, in the trials, there was about a threefold increase of uh, endophthalmitis, which is basically 2%. And basically it was because of the retraction of the conjunctiva. Um, so we not only will have to be able to monitor disease activity, but we also have to monitor the health of the device. We have to lift the, the lids up and uh, make, an, make an assessment of that. That first year is probably critical. In the study, uh, most people had an infection in the, within the first 40 weeks. Uh, after that time period, we may feel more comfortable. Um, but I think that the most important thing is to try to identify something early so you can, so if you do need to revise the conjunctiva uh, over that uh, implant, uh, you can prevent someone from having endophthalmitis. No, I, I think that is the key. I think proper training and management of conjunctiva. And I think, you know, any vitreoretinal retinal specialist can place a PDS, but I think if you get the proper training and then you follow the steps, then you're going to be able to have the best outcome for your patients. So Joe, I totally agree with you. I think we're not used to, you know, taking care of conjunctiva and tenons like our glaucoma colleagues. So we have had a lot of learnings in the trials from the glaucoma colleagues about undermining the conjunctinon, respecting using, you know, non-tooth forceps, making sure we have, you know, good flap and there's no tension on the wound. So I totally agree. So actually eight out of 11 endophthalmitis cases, um, uh, that are part of the, you know, the 2% were actually, as you said, were due to conjunctival retraction and erosion. So the hope is that with proper training and, and you know, there are a lot of resources available now from pre-case training to modules and whatnot that the sponsor is, has provided. I think all of us need to be trained and there's virtual reality. So, so, so Joe, the second question I had was, how are you going to fit PDS? So are you going to do like five PDS in a day? Are you going to do one or two in your busy OR schedule? You're already doing 10 cases a day. So how are you going to fit those patients in? Well, with the patient selection, I'm hoping that, you know, I think it'll be a, a slow transition for me, uh, particularly I'm looking for the long haulers, those that have gotten, you know, injection fatigue. Um, I don't know if surgery will be a first option for a lot of these patients. I've had the discussion with some patients, a lot of them are very interested, but a lot of these patients are very old. You know, the, the, my 90 year old patients, they're not interested in surgery. And that represents quite a bit of my, of the patients that, that I see. Um, but for those individuals that will require surgery, we'll make the time. Um, I think that there is a learning curve to the procedure. Um, you know, but again, once you follow, follow the guidelines of how to properly put the implant, I don't think it would take a savvy surgeon very long to put the implant uh, in. Um, I think there will be, you know, peer-to-peer -peer sessions uh, set up that will help you. I think uh, Genentech is doing a great job. They have modules available that will help you. And also there'll be a cervical liaison in the operating room with you. And so all of these things will help you to have a, have a better um, a, a timing, so to speak, in the operating room where, where you feel comfortable, where I don't think it would take a long time for you to put these uh, implants uh, in the eye. I think those are great points, Joe, and I, I agree with all of them. And I think you made a point that obviously when we see patients, we start with uh, 
with intravitreal injections, and then we figure out what patients are gonna be best candidate for PDS. So, so Lela, that brings me to fericimab. Obviously, first by specific antibody, uh, you know, inhibits VEGFA, and two, really Tenaya Lucerne, eight out of 10 patients were Q12 uh, dosing or longer, and, you know, uh, and same thing in Yosemite and Ryan, about 70% or over 70% were on Q12 or Q16, really in terms of comparing it to currently approved agents, if Resimab gets approved, we should hear from FDA uh, in the near future, how do you feel Resimab will fit in your practice? And, and do you feel that TIE 2 activation by ANST inhibition has a role in durability and efficacy seen in the trial? Or do you think the effect is just from high molar dosing of anti-VEGF? Great question, Sarshad. Um, I'm super excited about the results and just submission to FDA. Again, more treatment, more durable treatment options to kind of help with our, you know, fatigue of our patient fatigue of um, coming to clinic to see us frequently and hence, you know, missing their appointments and not having as best of outcomes. Um, so I think first of all, for me, is going to be uh, one of the, you know, frontline choices. All of us are going to be cautious initially switching with any new drug uh, coming out. And we're going to, you know, look for those safety signals in trial. And I think this is definitely, um, um, you know, with minimal you know, evidence of any type of inflammation. So I think it's comparable to what we have on the, on the market um, currently. Um, and I would feel comfortable switching my frequent, you know, sort of flyer patients to this and, and seeing how they do initially um, and what it is. And then, and then going from there is understanding, you know, how long is it truly uh, panning out in, in the real world setting. And I think all of, all of my patients would be excited to have injectable choice every three months, maybe every four months um, choice. And I certainly would be too. Um, and then in terms of, you know, benefits addressing ang one and ang two imbalance, um, you know, I think really the real world setting will kind of answer that question as well. I think it's more anti-VEGF, um, but I think we'll find out. So, yeah, I agree. I think long-term data, uh, especially two-year data and, and the extension studies, uh, you know, Ronex and Avenol X will answer more about, is there impact on fibrosis? Is there changes in CNV uh, size and OCT and whatnot? So I agree with you. I think it's exciting the safety in the trial looks comparable, but obviously, you know, once it goes in the real world, we'll find more out. But just like you, you know, first uh, patients who are high need, but then, you know, if you have stable patients on six weeks uh, with an agent, I think if Resimab can get them 12 or 16 weeks, I think it really fits uh, uh, fits in our armamentarium. Uh, Joe, what about naive patients uh, treating with Resimab if it's approved and it appears to have comparable safety? When do you start using it in naive patients? You know, I was very happy with the results from the study, and I was really more happy to see the uh, safety profile. You know, at this point, every all the longer biologics that we've had have been associated with an increased intraocular inflammatory event, but neither the phase two or the phase three uh, had any severe uh, reactions, particularly there was no signs of retinal vasculitis and there was no retinal arterial occlusions. I think the rate of, of IOIs was about 2% in the, in the uh in the, in the FRISMAP arm and about 1.2% um, in the Aflipris arm, which are both, which are both are acceptable. So with that being said, with a longer durability, I see no reason why this cannot be uh, used in naive patients. Um, I think that the more we get comfortable with this, with this medication, the earlier we'll move that goalpost to treat, me, to treat me earlier eyes. I think I'm very interested early on 
uh, treating my higher flyers and even the people that I, I treated and extended previously, I would like to see if I can push them a little bit longer. Even if they're eight weeks and 10 weeks, I want to see if I can get them to 12 weeks, 14 weeks and 16 weeks. Uh, patients don't mind coming in and being monitored, but what they really mind is really the repeated injection. So even if I can follow them closely and I can give them personalized uh, therapy and figure out exactly when their disease becomes more active, I think that uh, we'll be able to minimize the treatment burden, which oftentimes leads to loss of vision over time. I think those are great points, Joe, and I agree with you. I think once established as an agent that's better than current standard of care uh, and, and the safety is comparable, then I think all of us would like to use it as first line in naive patients, in previously treated patients, and in stable patients to extend. But obviously, uh, payers uh, may have uh, some different opinion. And this brings me to the subject of biosimilars and compounded uh, bevacizumab. Of course, you know, we use that, but Outlook Therapeutics is looking for FDA-approved uh, bevacizumab. So, so Lela, you know, you're in academic practice. You know, how do you see biosimilars and if approved, FDA-approved bevacizumab fitting into your practice? And and, 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 and what's the role of, you know, like uh, more durable agents like frisimab then do they fall as third line agents or second line and how does PDS fall in? So, so tell me uh, about your thoughts on biosimilars and FDA approved bevacizumab. No, I think, um, I think our landscape is going to continue to change and will definitely change with biosimilars. Um, I'm going to be initially a little wary uh, about you know, using biosimilars, particularly because they don't require as much of a rigorous trial as just first of them went through. And, you know, we talk about safety for that and what kind of numbers. Um, we know that biosimilars have a little bit of an easier route in getting approved. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm going to be very cautious in Svenjet. But that said, I think we're, our hands are going to be tied and it's going to be really tied by the insurance demands and, you know, um, to include this as a sort of a step, a step therapy. Um, I'm going to continue to use compound up till probably I'm told to switch to biosimilar in essence. And that's primarily because we've used bevacizumab, compounded bevacizumab for so long. We know that it's, you know, safe, efficacious, and, um, you know, cost-wise it's uh, pretty inexpensive as well. Uh, so that would be sort of what I'm going to continue with. And then adding into, you know, that route for Zimab, I, ideally, I would want to have, you know, for those patients who are responding, I would want to have longer treatment options and, and going with that route. So I think those are great points. I think as a field, I think we need to do what's best for the patients. So I think sometimes, you know, if payers are limiting our access, I think we have to tell the payers that, you know, why we're using a drug we're using. So if somebody needs bevacizumab every six weeks, while frisimab every 16 weeks, if it was me, I would want frisimab because I don't want to come to clinic and get treated often. Yeah. So to your point, I think, you know, bevacizumab works and, and, you know, there are going to be payers who are going to restrict access, but I think, and you're very involved with ASRS, uh, Lela and, uh, and, and, and other societies. I think uh, I agree with you. We just will have to make sure that they understand that frisimab, if it's better then they have, we don't stop access to patients. Um, but, but I agree, I think FDA approved bevacizumab may limit access for compounded and the price differential could be a problem where it's much highly priced and it's not as durable, let's say, uh, like a Flibersap or, or, or Renovizumab or Frisimab, then 
there are challenges associated with it. And I agree with safety. I think biosimilar trials, as you said, are very short. And, 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 and why would I use a biosimilar? I don't see in my private practice using a biosimilar if I have experience with approved agents for last decade or so. Joe, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this topic? No, I, I agree with both of you guys. Now I'm going to play devil advocate here because I know that there are other people in the country that may uh, be a bigger fan of, of Bevacivimab. And I think that, you know, it's nothing wrong with that. So if we did have a biosimilar that is approved for the eye, I do think it, it may uh, be a little more safer for patients. Uh, this company is doing their due diligence and trying to get this uh, medicine approved and uh, going through the rigorous process that we have done previously for other intravitreal injections. They're also in the process of trying to get a pre-filled syringe, uh, uh, silicone oil, uh, a pre-filled uh, syringe. So uh, in, in some markets, this may be a game changer in terms of um, uh, having more access to drugs that are not uh, compounded by a, uh, by, by a pharmacy where sometimes we see variable uh, uh, um, efficacy and also more contaminants. Um, in other parts of the world where they may not be very well versed in having a compounding pharmacy, I can see that this drug uh, being more readily available for, to have easier access. But I agree with you. I don't see any reason why we need to use medications that doesn't have efficacy uh, for some of the drugs that we have coming down, coming down the line, particularly when we're starting to address the unmet need of repeated injections and the burden when we have more durable drugs. Very well said, Joe. I agree with you. It's great to have options. And I think as physicians, our job is to uh, uh, use the art of drug choice to get uh, the best drug for our patients so they can have the best outcome when they're getting treatment for their disease. With that, uh, we're going to go on a short break and then we'll be back uh, with a case in a minute. Welcome back. This is the first episode of Art of Drug Choice. And now we're gonna have a case presentation by Dr. Joe Cooney. Joe? Dr. Shad, I wanna show you this case here. Um, it's a 90 year old Caucasian female that presented to us in 2014 with atrophic uh, dry uh, macular degeneration. At that time, uh, being 90 years old, she did have some difficulty in living by herself as well as transportation. Unfortunately, over time, she converted to a wet macular degeneration. Uh, she developed this large pigment epithelial uh, detachment associated with a coronary vascular membrane. You can see the subretinal fluid uh, flanking over the size of this large PED. Uh, we, initiate, we initially treated her with uh, four, sorry, with uh, monthly injections of bevacivimab, and she had a pretty good response. How, however, the visual acuity uh, did, did get worse. I just assume it was re related to the pathology that we were that we were looking at, she went down to counting fingers at four feet. Although the PED was started, starting to collapse, um, she again was having a difficult time with um, making her appointments. Although she had missed one, we decided to switch her to a flibercept because she was on step therapy. And I typically like uh, a branded drugs, particularly when I have a large PED, because I think they have a much better response. So we switched her to a flibercept. And she actually did quite well. She had an improvement in visual acuity of 2040. Um, at, at this point, um, I thought she was doing really well. And I would have probably kept her uh, on the flipperset. Uh, after, um, after a few uh, months going past, uh, she was wondering if she could extend out. I wasn't quite ready to extend her out at this point, uh, given the how she presented and my fear that she may have an early recurrence. 
So I did speak to her about Prolocizumab. It was early in the process when the drug was approved. Um, I thought it had a much more drying effect and maybe a good uh, option for her. So we switched her to Prolocizumab and uh, we went out to two months right off the back with her. She had three injections, two months apart. Her visual acuity remained stable. The OCT continued to improve and we uh, continued to extend her out to about 12 weeks. Currently, She's been stable at 12 weeks and her next appointment with me would be in 14 weeks. So this is a good example of someone who had six intravitreal brolocytomab injections. I was able to not only stabilize her vision uh, after, after her loading dose, but we were also able to extend her out to about 14 weeks um, without any signs of intraocular inflammation. Uh, we decided to keep her on the medication because of her good response. And today she continues to, she continues to, uh, to do well. Joe, great case. That was um really um, nicely summarized and thank you for sharing. Um, my question to you would be, uh, why did you choose Brolcizumab over another branded drug? Once I switched to, to a Flibercept and saw her response, I didn't think that switching her to another anti-VEGF would have done any difference. And I was really concerned about extending her past the uh, two month mark because um, in my opinion, these individuals would normally will have early recurrences. Um, I, I did have some early experience with brolicizumab. The drying effect was really um, astounding to me and some of my earlier patients that I put this on. And I was comfortable at that time uh, switching her over. This was before we started to notice some of the inflammatory events uh, from uh, from app. So in order to try to decrease her burden, I thought this was the best agent for her, um, at least as a trial. And when she came back, at least within that uh, three-month period, she was doing so well. I didn't see any other reason to switch her back once the information came out about uh, inflammatory events. And how do you follow patients that are on brolicizumab? What's kind of your routine um, in terms of ensuring that they don't have any inflammation? You know, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I don't really use this as, as first line. Um, this is really like a second, really like a third line uh, a therapy. These are, I really um, uh, reserve this therapy for individuals that are, are have worsening of, of their disease or someone I really can't extend out. Um, and what I typically do is I bring them back within, a, within you know, a four to six weeks to make sure, uh, for one, make sure that, that the response is doing well. And also I'm looking uh, uh, more closely uh, for uh, signs of inflammation. You know, sometimes patients can do well, but you may see very subtle uh, cells in the anterior vitreous or in the anterior chamber, uh, which may give you a cue that, you know, maybe the next time patient may have earlier may have a, a much more robust uh, uh, inflammatory event. These are things I normally typically didn't look for before with other uh, anti-VGFs. Uh, but once a, um, a patient is established, um, the good thing about these patients is that they have had multiple injections previously. And they know uh, uh, every time they come in, we talk about the signs of inflammation. If they have any redness, any pain, any light sensitivity, you know, loss of vision, they are to call the office uh, uh, right away. Um, so that's how I've been able to monitor these patients. Uh, but for the most part, it's, it, it, these are rare occurrences, uh, but I do think uh, patients need to be aware of them. And uh, I think it comes down to patients, patients uh, selection. No, I've, I've had really um, great results in terms of drying myself in those cases, particularly this case, as you showed a really um, large PED, um, that kind of um, that type of patient um, definitely would need frequent injections, um, as we all know, but to have 
such a drawing effect and such a good visual outcome. Um, it's it's great to see. I agree with both of you. I think uh, Joe, uh, great case, great management. And I think your pearls about looking for cells in the AC and the vitreous is the key because sometimes we just do injection only visits, some of us. And so with brolocizumab comes the burden of monitoring every time, but yeah, the anatomic response, as you and Lala have said, it, it's way better than uh, the other available agents, obviously. So, so quick question before we wrap up. So Lala, first to you, are you still using brolocizumab in your practice? And what, the, what does that patient look like? Is it monthly injection patient with persistent fluid, or is it a Q6 to eight week patient with persistent fluid that's controlled with monthly, let's say a Flibercept? Yeah, no, great question. It's six, it is, I do still use it. Um, it is my sort of third or fourth line uh, choice. And it's exactly that frequent injection, injection patient who I just can't stretch out and really wants to kind of try something else. Or, you know, even with that, you're just not having a complete drying effect. Um, and it also plays an effect what, what the status of the other eyes as well and such. So I think that's a good point. I'm not going to use it in a patient monocular patient, obviously, because of risk of, uh, even though you can monitor, there are some cases where it can happen pretty quickly. So I think that's a really good point. Joe, do you, do you load uh, your patients, uh, your switch patients? You go to brolocizumab. My experience has been, you do one and they stay dry for a long time. So I don't usually load patients. And I think that's the learning from the Merlin study where monthly treatment was given and, and, and the inflammation rates were double. So, so I think our job is to give minimal injections as long as the disease is controlled. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. You know, because these are treatment experienced eyes, I typically start from the point they have uh, positive disease activity. If they return back that next month, I try to extend them out uh, from there. And surprisingly, uh, these patients have a much more drying effect and I, I am able to extend them out uh, 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 much quicker. So I try to limit uh, the number of injections and try to uh, maximize uh, the efficacy of the drug uh, with uh, close monitoring. Thank you, Lela and Joe, for your great discussion. Joe, excellent case. I also want to thank the listeners uh, for listening to this episode. Uh, we have two more episodes that are forthcoming for this installment of The Art of Drug Choice. Also, please check out the images from Dr. Cooney's case on itube.net. Thank you very much.